Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric. Thank you, Dr. Boyle. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for January 20th, 2016. This is also uh, the beginning of our Chad Dermatology Mini Fellowship Series. So I see friends, I think, in the Administrative Conference Room in Manchester on the little screen to my left, but I, I know our, our friends and colleagues in the region are, are also tuned in. This will be a beginning of, I think, I think four, um, four uh, updates in pediatric dermatology led by Dr. Mann over the coming months as part of our ongoing effort to um, make sure that we have a uh, most evidence-based, up-to-date refresher on the most important and common conditions in pediatrics and might share approaches across our system that facilitate uh, better care for patients, easier facilitated transition of patients between primary and specialty care, uh, and, and ongoing uh, creation of a of a one chat hole. So um, I, I that is our that is our up to some good for the day. I had uh, been off the past couple of days and forgot to get our up to some good. We have one more grand rounds this month with Dr. Bauer next um, Wednesday, giving an update in pediatric neurosurgery. And the code, if you did get STW, is zero. It's not an O. It's zero STW to get your CME credit. So it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker and the, the, the faculty coordinator for the Chad Dermatology Fellowship Series, Dr. Julianne Mann, who has joined us now two years ago or so, almost a year and a half ago. Julia, Julianne is a, a Dartmouth Medical School or Geisel School of Medicine graduate from 2007, where she won the Dean's Medal subsequently completed her pediatrics internship at NYU before leaving the big city and heading off to the Pacific Northwest, where she completed both residency and fellowship in dermatology and pediatric dermatology and joined their faculty for the first two years of her career until 2014, when we were able to recruit her back uh, about 15 months ago back home to Dartmouth. She has a particular interest, as she's going to share today, on um, vascular birthmarks and hemangiomas, uh, and actually procedural skills in that area. So uh, the first topic um, may, be, may be less broadly um, relevant to the broad scope of pediatric dermatology, but is an area of particular expertise we have in our home institution. So I, I don't know if this is your first pediatric year around, so welcome, welcome to that as well. Thank Thanks, Julianne. Okay, so this, um, this talk will be an update on hemangiomas in general, and then um, we'll spend a bunch of time talking about beta blocker therapy, which um, has emerged in the last six years or so and is really exciting, um, has opened a lot of exciting new doors in our field. I have no conflicts of interest. So objectives for this morning, uh, first, we'll, we'll understand new concept in the natural history of infantile hemangiomas. So we have learned a lot in just in the last five to 10 years about how infantile hemangiomas behave over the course of infancy and early childhood. We'll recognize high-risk hemangiomas that deserve consideration of treatment with topical or oral beta blockers. We'll identify hemangiomas that require workup for associated anomalies or syndromes, specifically um, we'll touch upon face syndrome and pelvis syndrome. And then we'll appreciate the efficacy, potential side effects, and optimal timing of beta blocker therapy. So let's start off talking about 
um, some new information in terms of the natural history of how infantile hemangiomas behave. <clears throat> so we, the, the um, International Society for the Study of Vascular Anomalies, or ISFA, has issued um, a new set of classifications, sort of a new classification schema for vascular birthmarks, including infantile hemangiomas. And um, this was about 10 years ago. And really, we, we're trying to simplify the classification of these birthmarks, which historically have been kind of confusing. So when we talk about infantile hemangiomas now, we use the terms superficial, which are the thin, bright red ones, deep, which are the, um, the deep blue bulge, and then combined, when there are features of both. And the combined hemangiomas are really common. And you'll hear people um, refer to these, even some dermatologists refer to them as cavernous hemangiomas, or um, sometimes they're confused with venous malformations. But really, this is the scheme, this is the classification that um, we all should try to be using now when we're describing infantile hemangiomas. So early on, um, at birth or within the few, first few days of birth, um, there is almost always a precursor lesion visible. And so this is information that's a little bit new. The old teaching was that infantile hemangiomas were not present at birth, but in fact, most of them have some sort of mark there. Usually it's a flat pink match, macule or patch. Sometimes um, there's just a blanched area of vasoconstriction and typically very subtle at birth, oftentimes blamed on birth trauma, um, and really, most of the time, there's not a lot made of this little precursor lesion in the newborn nursery. Um, then by two to four weeks of age, these things really blossom. So superficial hemangiomas present as a thin, bright red plaque, the deeper ones as a bluish bulge. So here's an example of a hemangioma precursor lesion. So it's really subtle, but if you look um, up just lateral to this infant's lateral canthus, you can see here this almost bruise-like area. And if you look carefully, you can appreciate this rim of vasoconstriction. And that's how these almost always look. So the precursor lesion is what you see at birth. Then soon thereafter, we enter into the proliferative or growth phase before moving on to the involution or the plateau phase and then the involution phase. So Here's an example of a, of a baby in the early proliferative phase. So this is a combined hemangioma. You can see the deep blue component in the background and the superficial bright red component centrally. This is a 10-week-old baby. You can say, um, see here, now the baby's three and a half months old. You can appreciate the deep component is really coming on board here. So hemangiomas, oftentimes, the first part you see is that superficial type, and the deep component is often very subtle early on, and then as infancy goes on, that deep component proliferates later and longer. So you can appreciate the bulk of this lesion, um, especially if you look at the corner of the infant's mouth. Here we are now in plateau or early involution phase, so this child's just over two years old. Here's three and a half years old. Um, early involution, and then here's late involution. So this lesion will not improve really much beyond this. Um, once, once children are, are early school age, usually there's not a whole lot more improvement. So a very important piece of information that, that is recent is that we know now that the proliferative phase of hemangiomas occurs really early in infancy. So it used to be thought, oh, proliferation occurs over the first year of life. And that's true to some extent, but the vast majority of proliferation occurs very early. So the most rapid growth is between weeks five and a half and seven and a half of life. 
and ulceration, functional impairment um, are most likely to occur, at least initially during this stage. Um, and then once that ulceration tissue distortion has occurred, response to treatment becomes more limited. Um, we know now that 80% of hemangiomas reach their final size by five months of age. So here was a really nice study done by um, Alona Frieden and colleagues. She's a pediatric dermatologist at UCSF, a real pioneer on the world of um, the understanding of, of uh, hemangiomas. And she had parents take photographs of their infants at home. Babies who were identified as having a precursor lesion at birth um, were instructed to take photographs of their, of their baby every seven to 10 days. And these photographs were compiled. And you can see here, if you start on the upper left, um, very innocuous looking precursor lesion. Um, and then over the first 10 weeks of life, you can see this bottom row, I mean, this hemangioma really took off. So that by 12 weeks of life, got a very large, um, really cosmetically um, challenging hemangioma right up at the edge of the eye. Propranolol was initiated in this infant at 12 weeks of age, but you can see um, there certainly was a response to propranolol, but a, you know, a, um, a tempered one. Here's another infant, um, precursor lesion on the upper left, and then um, this is just 10 weeks of age where this hemangioma has gotten really very large, and again, propranolol was initiated. Good response, but still with some residual scarring and permanent tissue distortion. Here are examples of proliferating hemangiomas that have ulcerated. So this ulceration often can occur, um, as I mentioned, the beginnings of the ulceration often start by week seven and a half, eight of life. Um, and these ulcerations can be very large and they're exquisitely painful for infants. I can't tell you the number of babies I see who appear in my office and they are just, they're tachycardic, they are beside themselves, they can't sleep. Um, it's really challenging. Once ulceration has occurred, the horse is kind of out of the barn and it takes, even with the best therapy, it takes several weeks to get these healed up. So the goal is we need to identify these babies earlier and start babies on treatment to try to prevent this from happening. The other thing about ulceration is that these ulcers leave behind really um, unpleasant looking scars that are permanent. Here's a baby um, referred to me who had not only ulceration, but a very significant super infection. So um, I lifted up a little bit of this crust and there was just very copious purulent drainage. So um, that's another potential complication. Baby with a large sc uh, combined scalp hemangioma complicated by ulceration. Scalp hemangiomas in general, I always tell parents if, if your child had to have a hemangioma, the scalp is probably the perfect place because a lot of them we can just ride it out and as long as they don't ulcerate, eventually hair will grow over. But if they ulcerate, you've got a bald spot there that's permanent. So we really want to avoid that on the scalp. Here's an example of a baby with a deep hemangioma. Um, at the medial canthus with uh, impending visual axis occlusion. So here's what I would suggest that I think um, working together as a team here that following these babies with any sort of precursor lesion or anything noted at, in the newborn nursery or at the two-week well baby check, schedule those patients for a four-week hemangioma check. See them back and just get a sense of where are the hemangiomas headed and um, that way, when they come 
that when they come back at the eight-week well baby check, you're not really kind of taken by surprise by how much this hemangioma has blossomed. Um, educating parents about the natural history and informing them that we have treatment options. Ideally, if we can do that early in infancy, then that keeps all options on the table. And that's, I think, a lot of parents really appreciate receiving that information very early. And some of the time they get that information and the hemangioma never really amounts to much. We never end up treating it. But that's okay. I think parents really would, um, most of them would prefer that. So ideally, if parents would like to pursue therapy, and we'll get into all the details of that soon, um, referring at somewhere around four to six weeks of life is ideal, if we're, especially if we're dealing with a high-risk hemangioma. So the involution phase typically begins by 12 months, but for deep hemangiomas, sometimes that can be later. So I've seen deep hemangiomas that don't begin, that don't plateau and involute until age two or three. Um, that involution occurs slowly and gradually. So a lot of parents, I think, don't necessarily appreciate that. Even if they've read extensively on the internet, they think, well, this thing proliferated really rapidly, so it should shrink just as rapidly. But I think educating them that the involution is a sometimes um, painfully slow process that occurs over a longer period of time. We notice that the hemangioma gets less warm to the touch. The color changes from bright red to dull red to kind of this grayish lilac color. Um, and they soften and flatten. Um, another new piece of information is that historically, the teaching was 50% of hemangiomas have involuted by age four or five, and the other 50% take all the way until age 10. Well, we actually, that, that's, that sort of stat or rule of thumb was based on a very small cohort of patient, in, patients in the 1960s, and actually a number of children with vascular birthmarks that were not hemangiomas were included in that cohort, which really skewed those numbers. So we have newer studies that show that really the vast majority of children, involution is pretty much complete by about age three and a half. So a very small percentage of babies, the involution takes a little longer. But I usually tell parents by three and a half, pretty much what you see is what you get in terms of how good the hemangioma will end up looking. So here's an example of, um, from this paper um, in 2012, where if you, if you look here, you can see the period of rapid proliferation in the first three months of life, and then a very slow, gradual involution. If you look at the picture at, at um, 34 months of age, in the middle row on the right there, you can see not a lot of change happened between 34 months and you know all the way on the bottom right. So. Um, I think that's important for parents to know because if there is a fiber fatty residuum or something that's cosmetically distorting, there's not a whole lot of reason to wait to, to excise or do a revision much beyond three and a half years of age, particularly because three and a half is around the time when sort of self-image and self-esteem starts to come on board. Here's another example from that paper. If you can see here, um, if you look at the, the hemangioma at age three and compare it to the hemangioma at age nine, there's just really not a whole lot of difference there. So <clears throat> more new information is that involution does not equal disappearance. And we know from recent studies that residuals can changes are persist in over two-thirds of untreated hemangiomas. So um, fiber fatty tissue is very common, particularly if there's a deep component. A contour, contour alteration, so just sort of atrophy or sagging or a kind of pooched out area of skin. 
Telangiectasias are also really common. Um, and it, I think it's really important to explain this to parents early in infancy. Um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we, the, the teaching was always, you know, for the vast majority of hemangiomas, ride it out, they'll eventually, quote unquote, disappear. And so I think we really, um, we have new information to suggest that that's really not the case. And particularly now that we have treatments that are a lot more effective and safer than steroids, I think it's good for parents to have this information early on. So here's an example of, um, an example of atrophy after involution of a combined hemangioma. So there's, there's not a major contour defect here in that there's no outpouching and there's no color change, but it's a pretty cosmetically obvious mark um, for, for the central forehead. Here's an example um, of a three-and-a-half-year-old with uh, residual scarring and telangiectasias from a predominantly superficial hemangioma on the central face. Fiber fatty residua after involution of deep or combined hemangiomas are really common. Um, so the girl on the left, she was 15 when she came to see me, um, and the girl on the right was four. Sometimes these fiber fatty residua can be really huge. And um, it's a very, they feel very um, kind of squishy and soft. And um, this child was three at the time that these pictures were taken. Um, and really, you're not going to get a whole lot of improvement beyond this later in childhood. Um, large combined ulcerated hemangioma on the upper left and examples of this kind of textural fiber fatty change that's often left behind. Larger fiber fatty residuum on the left, and then on the right is a child with a nasal tip hemangioma. This is a really important anatomic site um, to identify babies with nasal tip hemangiomas early, because if untreated, they lead to what we what has been termed the Cyrano deformity. So they get this kind of bulbous nose, um, which sometimes early in infancy or even mid infancy is not super obvious. And depending on what the parents' noses look like, sometimes it's not that obvious, but, um, but it can be very cosmetically distorting, and it's a really tricky thing to revise. So even um, John Mulkin down at Boston Children's, um, who really has pioneered um, plastic surgery for the treatment of involuted hemangiomas, I mean, he's wonderful, but even he will say at lectures that it's just you'll never get as good of a cosmetic outcome from a plastic surgery of a nasal tip hemangioma as compared to propranolol if you started early in infancy. <clears throat> so this is, I think, another really important um, point here is that the impact that facial hemangiomas has on parents and relatives and caregivers is really huge. And I think sometimes um, this can be overlooked. So there was a study done um, also by Alona Frieden at UCSF in 1998 showing that uh, about 40% of, of parents expressed feelings of sadness and loss when their infant um, developed this hemangioma, and just this feeling that the, the beauty of their, their little baby has been flawed by this mark. And sadness at not experiencing the usual oohs and ahs um, by strangers when they go out in public. Um, guilt or self-blame, particularly among mothers, is very common. And then this feeling, these feelings of disbelief and panic and fear that come on board during the proliferation stage. So a lot of parents cited um, in this study that they just 
had this panic that the hemangioma was never going to never going to stop growing. And parents say this to me very regularly: Is this going to take over her face? I mean, is her nose going to melt away? Like it's it, it's understandable. They just feel very panicked about this, um, and that reassurance from physicians is helpful, but that the emotional reaction to this is still one of um, just being really distressed. So here's an example, a beautiful baby, and it's, it's hard for your eye not to go right to that ulcerated hemangioma on the forehead. <laughs> so going out in public, um, th this study did a really nice job at characterizing parents' um, reactions being out in public with their babies who have hemangiomas. And they just, they, they, a lot of parents cited these constant reactions and comments by strangers that everywhere they went, people, it was the first thing that people always, always said. They would make comments about, oh, did she, for deep hemangiomas, did she fall and bump her head? Or, um, you know, accusations of child abuse even. And then this sort of unsolicited advice, urging the parent to go have it treated, have it dealt with. Um, and that almost a third of parents said that they actually at times opted not to take their infant out in public because they were just worn out from these comments. So most parents said that they understood these reactions that strangers had intellectually, but that just the fact that they were so repetitive and relentless just made it, them really hard to handle. So um, Rich Antea is a pediatric dermatologist at Yale, and he did a study recently, um, a survey study of parents presenting to his practice, um, just looking into parental anxiety about hemangiomas. So three-quarters of parents had researched hemangiomas on the Internet, no surprise, prior to their appointment. Um, but only a third of them felt that the Internet had given them adequate information, and that over half felt that actually reading on the Internet made them more anxious. And I think if you Google infantile hemangioma, I mean, you come up with the most awful, the worst images, ulcerated, huge things. And you can imagine a parent, when they see those images, it just, you know, it hits their panic button. So I think it's really important to ask about, you know, to not just address the hemangioma medically, but to ask about how the parents are feeling about it. What's their level of worry about it? How anxious are they? How, how accepting are family members of this? Um, and have a really good discussion with them about the natural history so they know what to expect, so that they don't have that, you know, at least we do what we can to minimize the fear that the hemangioma is going to just take over and become ginormous. And then discussing with them the availability and excellent safety profile of current hemangioma treatments, or refer to us to do that. So let's talk about high-risk hemangiomas that um, should, should receive consideration for treatment with beta blockers. So what, what is a high-risk hemangioma? In my mind, it's a hemangioma that threatens a vital function. So generally, these are periorificial, um, interfere with vision, hearing, eating, breathing, elimination. A hemangioma that's likely to ulcerate, which, as we mentioned before, is very painful and leads to really um, significant scarring. It's a hemangioma that's likely to leave behind permanent skin changes if untreated, particularly if it's a hemangioma in a cosmetically visible area. And then number four, it's a hemangioma that's associated with internal manifestations. So um, this is a, a nice summary of high-risk hemangiomas. I apologize that the, the font is not um, optimal. But if you look on the left-hand column, um, the first category is potentially disfiguring sites. So nasal tip, perioral, glabella, ear, eyebrow, 
essentially central face and periorificial. That's a big category that, um, of, of hemangiomas that we need to, to identify. Um, superficial, thick hemangiomas that are not easily covered by clothing. Um, and then large facial hemangiomas, um, greater than five centimeter in diameter, not only are those high risk from a cosmetic standpoint, but those, need, those children need to be identified because of the potential association with face syndrome, which we'll talk about. Um, lumbosacral or perineal hemangiomas, beard area, and then five or more. So let's go through these categories one by one. So nasal hemangiomas. Um, superficial hemangiomas can affect the nasal tip. Um, you can see on the right is a deep hemangioma on the nasal tip. So those are very subtle bluish hue initially. Um, and then they, they develop that kind of bulbous quality. Periorbital hemangiomas also can be superficial or deep. Um, the baby in the, in the central bottom photograph um, uh, presented to me with a presumed diagnosis of, of, um, of cellulitis. So oftentimes deep hemangiomas around the eye, they initially present with swelling and puffiness and sometimes some erythema, and it's um, understandable that initially that's concern for cellulitis, and then it becomes clear the child can't open their eye, there's no response to antibiotics. Um, baby on the left uh, was, was sent to me for this hemangioma, and actually that was completely blocking his external auditory canal, and he had an associated conductive hearing loss. Perioral hemangiomas, um, especially in young infants, often are associated with problems latching, um, and feeding, and then later on, problems with speech development. Central face hemangiomas, even the ones that are not huge, like the one the, on the glabella on the left, um, our eye is so trained to look at people's central face during social interactions that scarring or any contour changes in those areas, we, we pick up on that really, um, really easily. Beard area hemangioma is another really important one to identify. So Seth Orlo is a pediatric dermatologist at NYU, and he described this. Um, he was the first one to describe this, and this publication um, came with it, a nice diagram. Um, these asterisks, if a child has four or more of these areas involved, there's a very substantial chance that they actually have airway hemangioma as well. Even if it's one of these areas involved, up to 10% of those babies have laryngeal hemangioma. So this has to do with embryological development. It's not a contiguous hemangioma from here to the larynx. It, it's discontiguous. Um, and these babies with airway hemangiomas, we have to identify them early um, because the laryngeal hemangioma proliferates just the way the cutaneous one does. So <clears throat> managing these beard distribution hemangiomas, um, we need to identify them early to prevent lip ulceration, which is very painful and can really cause problems with feeding. Parents need to be counseled about the development of a croupy cough, which initially um, can just sound just like croup and then rapidly becomes progressive and can progress um, to an airway emergency very quickly as the hemangioma proliferates. So these babies should all be sent to ENT. They all need a, they all need a look, a visual look at their vocal cords. Um, and if they do have hemangioma in their larynx, then propranolol is the treatment of choice. Another example of a baby with a beard. Hemangioma, so you can see the baby on the left, and then um, about a month later on the right, and that lip hemangioma has progressed to an ulceration there. Let's talk about multiple hemangiomas. So five or more is another high-risk category that we need to identify. 
These are really interesting because they often look very innocuous. They're, they're very small. None of them are really large. None of them have ulcerated. Um, but there is a very substantial risk of, of visceral hemangiomatosis when you see five or more in an infant. So the number one site of involvement is the liver, um, but you can get these almost anywhere. Um, I have cared for infants who have had hemangiomas in the brain, um, in the lungs. Definitely the GI tract is not uncommon. Um, but they need a really careful abdominal exam. They need an abdominal ultrasound, particularly looking at the liver. Um, and some of these babies can have really diffuse hemangiomas in the liver parenchyma that can cause obstructive cholestasis, that can cause um, high output cardiac failure, and even abdominal compartment syndrome. So um, John Mulliken, who I mentioned at Boston Children's, just last month published a nice article showing that identifying babies with liver hemangiomatosis early in infancy really saves lives. So these babies all need to work up pretty, um, pretty early in their life. There's also a risk of hypothyroidism with multiple hemangiomas. Um, and this same risk of hypothyroidism holds true for very large hemangiomas. So um, hemangiomas actually produce this substance called iodothyronine diiodinase that deactivates thyroid hormone peripherally. So a lot of these babies will become hypothyroid over the first 6 to 12 months of life. Okay, so let's talk about segmental hemangiomas that need workup for associated anomalies. So segmental hemangiomas um, mostly exist or sort of are comprised of, of a coalescing papules that coalesce into this plaque that's in a segmental distribution, sort of a band-like distribution. Um, sometimes they have very little proliferation, which can make these tricky, and they can actually mimic port wine stains on the face. So here are examples of facial segmental hemangiomas. Um, so you can see the one on the left very closely mimic a, a port wine stain, but, but the, um, the contour is not quite right for a port wine stain. I mean, port wines on the face are almost always confluent patch. When you see aggregated papules or macules, um, that should sort of, a little red flag should go off in your mind. Um, and, and then over the first few weeks of life, as the hemangioma proliferates, typically at least part of this patch will raise up and become a plaque. So face syndrome was described relatively recently in 1996. Um, and now we know that the incidence w uh, far exceeds that of Sturge Weber. So the P in face stands for posterior fossa malformation. So a lot of these babies have cerebellar problems. Um, hemangioma, which is typically segmental on the face. They have arterial abnormalities in the neck and head. And they have cardiac abnormalities as well as coarctation of the aorta. A very wide range of eye abnormalities. And then in some publications, you'll see S added on for sternal clefting or supraumbilical raffe. Um, Dr. Frieden herself doesn't like including the S because very few patients actually have that last um, criteria, so she just calls it face. So if you just look at patients with large facial hemangiomas, so five centimeters by four centimeters on the face, about a third of them actually have this syndrome. So segment one, um, which is sort of involving the upper eyelid and, um, and the temporal scalp, um, and the forehead, the lateral forehead, that's the highest risk segment for face syndrome, which is kind of nice because it roughly corresponds to the traditional V1 distribution of a port wine stain that would make you worry about Sturge Weber. Um, so 
if you see an infant with a segmental hemangioma on the face, um, they, they should be seen by Pedsterm. They need a cardiac echo, and they need an MRI, MRA of the entire head, neck, and chest. So it's a big imaging workup. Um, typically have to do that in, um, you know, in, in groups. Um, and then they need an opto exam. So here's an example of an infant with face syndrome with a minimally proliferative segmental hemangioma on the face. So if you look at this and appreciate the telangic, the sort of telangic tatic quality of this, again, it's a little bit different from, um, from a Port Weinstein. This was a patient of mine in Portland, um, referred to me for a laser treatment of a, um, a Port Weinstein. But again, the telangiectatic quality of this and the sort of broken up nature of it and the very band-like segmental distribution is more consistent with the hemangioma. Um, so this baby was actually missing one of her internal carotid arteries on the left side. Um, this is another patient of mine um, from Portland who had a large segmental hemangioma on the scalp. Involvement of the occipital scalp and face syndrome directly predicts cerebellar involvement. Another child, you can see the ulceration on the top of her ear there. Um, she actually had intracranial hemangioma. She was really interesting. She presented um, with a left-sided facial palsy because the hemangioma was compressing her seventh facial nerve. So why, do we, why is it important to identify these babies early? Because babies with stroke syndrome, because of their arterial abnormalities in the neck and head, are at high risk for stroke. Um, so the more tortuous and abnormal their vessels are, the higher the risk of stroke. And um, so they need to be identified before school age because they should definitely not be playing contact sport. They should, they should not be heading soccer balls. Um, and, and we need to identify them way earlier than that because babies with face syndrome, you have to escalate their propranolol very slowly because if they have a stenotic cerebral vessel or their circle of Willis is not intact and you escalate rapidly, they can have a watershed infarct because of that abnormal blood supply to their brain. The second syndrome I'm going to talk about is pelvis, also known as lumbar syndrome, um, which is the association between a segmental infantile hemangioma in the pelvic or lumbar area with these associated congenital anomalies. So P stands for perineal or lumbosacral hemangioma. E is external genital malformations. L is lipomyelomeningocele, or really just in general, spinal dysraphism. Um, and then kidney and bladder issues, um, imperforate anus, and the skin tag is a very important part of this syndrome. Here's an example of a baby with a really large, obvious segmental hemangioma over the lumbar spine. This is a patient of mine from Portland who was referred to me. Um, and if you look carefully here, there's a little divot right here. And when I was examining this baby, I asked his mom about that. And she said, he was about two months old when he was sent to me. And she said, oh, yeah. Um, they were from very far rural Eastern Oregon. And she said, yeah, we saw a general surgeon in our town and he just snipped that little tag off for us. And so what you have to know about that tag is that the vast majority of the time, there's a sinus tract that connects directly to um, the spinal column. So there's obviously a really um, significant risk of, a, of meningitis if you mess with that tag. So he, so I sent him for imaging of his lumbar spine. He had a huge lipomyelomeningocele, um, and he had a ureteral malformation as well. Here's another example. So um, 
the, the genital malformations can help you make this diagnosis. So this child had kind of asymmetric um, scrotum, and um, it's important to realize that hemangiomas in the diaper area can mimic a very bad irritant diaper dermatitis. Here's an example of a really kind of frighteningly subtle um, lumbar syndrome baby. So that tag, though, is a real tip-off. So if you see a skin tag around the anus um, and any signs of a, of a hemangioma, those babies need imaging. Okay, so just to review, we talked about high-risk hemangiomas that should have consideration for treatment um, with topical or oral beta blockers and or a workup for other associated anomalies. So central face, periorificial, particularly if they're five millimeters or more in size, any large hemangioma, anything in the beard area, five or more, or anything segmental, particularly on the face or the lumbar um, back. Okay, so last objective. So let's talk about beta blockers. In 2008, there was this really amazing serendipitous discovery by a medical group in Bordeaux um, that really revolutionized the field. And oral steroids, which at the beginning of my dermatology residency, we were still using to treat infantile hemangiomas. Um, we virtually never use them anymore. So here's this baby, this very famous baby. Any pediatric dermatologist can, can identify this baby by face. So this was published as a case letter in the New England Journal in 2008. At nine weeks old, she had this very large segmental hemangioma on the face, and she was in the upper left, she was at five mg per kg per day of steroids. Hemangioma not responding, she had impending amblyopia, and she also had a, a, had a heart defect. So she was put on propranolol at two mg per kg per day. The upper right is seven days after the picture on the upper left. So she had really um, very rapid softening, spontaneous eye opening, and there she is at six months of age on propranolol, um, and then at nine months of age. So nothing short of a miracle here. I mean, this was really um, so exciting to pediatric dermatologists all around the world. And, um, and what's, what was really neat about this story is that there was a very rapid mobilization of pediatric dermatologists um, and a big group of academic medical centers um, formed together and did a randomized controlled trial um, looking at propranolol for treatment of infantile hemangiomas. So Alfie Kroll, I put a red box around his name because he's my mentor. Um, he's at OHSU, and I was fortunate enough when I was a resident and a fellow to be part of this study. So um, the research and, um, and studies that came out on, on propranolol for the treatment of hemangiomas led to the FDA approval in March 2014. They're both generic and branded formulas available, and the, the mechanism of actions are multiple. So. You see, within the first 48 hours of starting propranolol, there's a pretty noticeable improvement, and that's probably due to immediate vasoconstriction. Then there's also reduced renin production in the kidney, which leads to decreased levels of angiotensin, and there's very dramatic reduction in vascular endothelial growth factor production, um, which disproportionately targets hemangiomas and stimulates them. So when you reduce VEGF, the hemangioma sees the bulk of that, um, that effect. And obviously, normal vessel growth still goes on. So the effectiveness of propranolol um, is very impressive. 
Um, so by week five, um, the, some of the earlier studies showed 88% of patients. Um, that stat is from the New England Journal article. 88% um, of patients receiving propranolol had improvement by week five versus 5% of placebo. Um, and then a more recent um, meta-analysis with more than 1,200 patients, the, the, the response rate is 98%. So treatment failures with propranolol are really rare. Um, and that 75 to 82% of patients had 75% or more clearance of hemangiomas um, from 6 to 12 months of life, which obviously is a lot younger than you would expect um, if you're comparing that to just spontaneous involution. That doesn't typically happen until later. So I think we can chalk that improvement up to the drug itself. So safety profile. Um, so, of 401 patients receiving oral propranolol um, in that large multicenter study, um, the, the mean heart rate decreased by seven beats per minute, and the blood, mean blood pressure um, systolic decreased by three millimeters of mercury. And those hemodynamic differences were not detectable by week 24 of treatment. So it's a very minor effect, and it's an effect that goes away with time. There were no events of hypotension or hypoglycemia leading to drug discontinuation. There was one patient um, out of the 401 that were treated that had a serious event. That child developed enterocolitis um, and had symptomatic bradycardia. Um, there were no differences in hypoglycemia, hypotension, bradycardia, or bronchospasm in the treatment versus control groups. So the timing of propranolol initiation. So for, particularly for deep or combined hemangiomas, it's best if you start it early on in that proliferative phase. So you get the best results when you start this medication by week six of life. There are, there are infants that I have started on this medication at week two of life because particularly for periorbital um, hemangiomas, if you can tell that that visual axis is, you know, is gonna be occluded, um, we don't wait. Uh, ideally, you initiate before that rapid growth and associated soft tissue distortion has occurred. Um, and we know that if you initiate it before, you prevent that distortion and you prevent, the, you prevent the scarring, you prevent the contour defect, and you prevent the need for surgery down the road. Um, the average duration of therapy is six months because they have to be on it for the whole proliferative, uh, at least the bulk of the proliferative phase. Um, if you try to take them off it sooner than that, the hemangioma just comes roaring right back. Um, studies have shown that even two and three-year-olds benefit from propranolol, but the older you are when you start it, um, the older the patient is when you start it, um, the less the, of the response. So um, the clinical response to propranolol is pretty, it's pretty cool to watch. You see immediate softening within 24 hours. A lot of babies who have a periorbital hemangioma, within 24 hours they're actually able to open their eye. Um, and then the color changes within 48 hours. It turns from bright red to purple. Um, ulcers take several weeks to heal. I've had um, one child whose ulcers took six weeks to heal starting propranolol. So that's a slower process. Um, and then continued softening, lightening, and involution in subsequent weeks to months. And um, so as I mentioned, starting and propranolol early and halting that proliferative phase can prevent the need for surgery down the road. Um, here's some before and after pictures, just because I think it's really useful to see. So um, here's a child on the left at baseline and um, eight weeks into treatment. Baseline on the upper, um, the upper photograph, what's a little hard to appreciate in that picture is that there is a very significant ulcer in the center of that hemangioma on the lip. 
Um, so eight weeks into propranolol, you can see the ulcer is still there, but it's, it's much more shallow. And then six months into treatment, um, nice response, although notice that there is that divot in the vermilion lip there. Then that, that unfortunately, is permanent because of that ulceration. Combined hemangioma, you can see 15 days into treatment, that deep component has really um, is starting to, to flatten out. And then four months into treatment, a nice response there. Um, as I mentioned, um, periorbital hemangiomas, typically eye-opening occurs pretty rapidly. One thing I think is very important to note is that um, periorbital hemangiomas have the, dis the potential to permanently displace the globe, and it's almost always downward. So I have a number of patients who, um, who look just like this baby, where they respond to propranolol really nicely, but they always have eye asymmetry. And um, I have one child whose parents um, deferred treatment, and there were a lot of social issues going on, and she, has, she is really deformed. She has one whole orbit that's just like a centimeter below the other. So again, time is of the essence with these ones. So potential side effects. Um, cold hands and feet and sleep disturbances are the top two reported in most studies. The cold hands and feet, um, you know, as far as we can tell, not bothersome to infants. Um, sleep disturbances is one that um, is a little controversial because, of course, it's uh, every infant has a sleep disturbance in their first year of life. Um, but when you compare to the placebo group, Parents do report more often babies on propranolol have issues uh, both falling asleep and then with nighttime waking. Um, and it's interesting because if you look at adults who are on beta blockers, they report very vivid dreams. And um, I'll, I'll get at this later on in my talk, but um, it looks as though beta receptors um, in the brain actually, when you block them, you interfere with melatonin production. And so there, there, I think there is a real effect there. Um, but in my experience, most parents, they get through this without a whole lot more bumps in the road than um, other new parents in the first year of life. Bronchial hyperreactivity is important um, to address with parents, particularly if there's a strong family history of asthma. Um, and then reflux, diarrhea has been reported, although in my experience, that's pretty uncommon. Um, asymptomatic bradycardia and hypotension um, I screen for that when I start babies on for Pranolol, um, but I, knock on wood, I've never had to discontinue or even adjust dose of Pranolol for that. Hypoglycemia is one to be aware of. Um, we always give the medication with a feeding to minimize that risk. Um, and so the big New England Journal meta-analysis um, Pranolol was discontinued in in. 21 out of 1,200 patients. So about 1.8% of patients discontinued due to side effects. So really not bad. So how do we monitor propranolol? Um, I always listen to baby um, at baseline. If I have any concerns about murmurs or arrhythmias, I would send back to you for evaluation. And then sometimes we um, get an EKG or send a cardio. Um, for babies six weeks of age or greater, I do this as an outpatient. So I give, um, basically do three weeks of dose escalation. So I have the parents fill the medication. They pick up the medication. They bring it to my office. We give the first dose in the office. And, you know, we do a heart rate, blood pressure baseline. Then we give a dose of medication. Then they go into Hanover or they go for a walk or they sit in the waiting room for an hour and a half or so. And somewhere between an hour and a half and two hours is when the peak 
um, blood concentrations of propranolol come on board and we re-measure heart rate and blood pressure at that time. And assuming that's normal, they go home for a week and then the next week we do a dose escalation and then we do it a third time. So they're three weekly visits and then they're up to their goal dose. Um, for babies that are less than six weeks of age or if it's a functionally threatening hemangioma, um, I do sometimes admit and I've done that a few times already um, during my year or so here. Um, Parents need to be aware of this risk of hypoglycemia, although it's low. Um, I just counsel to feed frequently, which they're doing anyway for young infants. Um, and then they have to um, hold the propranolol if the baby gets sick. High fever, anything that's increasing metabolic rate, if they're not feeling, you know, feeding well particularly, I have them hold the propranolol for a few days. And w what often will happen is the, the hemangioma will start to fill back up. It'll, you know, start to get brighter red and it'll start to swell up again during those three days. But when you restart it, it goes right back down. Um, the risk of bronchospasm, sometimes I do have um, children whose parents have a history of asthma hold the medication. I have their parents hold the med for the first few days of a bad URI. So Timolol gel um, is worth just mentioning at least briefly. Um, so this was a medication initially FDA approved for the treatment of glaucoma. Um, this is an off-label use, so we do not have FDA approval for using this in hemangiomas, but it's been extensively published. It is effective for thin, superficial hemangiomas. Um, in thin-skinned areas, particularly eyelids and diaper area are the ones where I've had the most luck. Um, you apply it in a thin layer three times a day. It's a gel um, and very low risk of side effects, although in theory when you're applying it around a mucous membrane, I always say to parents, mostly I worry about like a six-month-old getting a hold of the bottle and, you know, sucking it down or something. But the risk of, of actual side effects if it's being applied correctly and the child doesn't get a hold of the medication is extremely low. Um, it's slower acting than propranolol, so it takes a few weeks to see an effect. So here's a, a patient of mine with a superficial ulcerated hemangioma in the diaper area, um, and here she is after six weeks of Timolol. So it can work really well in certain locations. Another example... Um, two weeks you can see there's some fading and then um, 16 weeks in a nice response. So Timol works well for small superficial hemangiomas, thin skinned areas. Propranolol is always better if there's a deep component, if there's any functional threat, if it's growing rapidly or if it's ulcerated um, or if it's large and still in the proliferative phase. So um, I'm always, you know, I, I think I'm pretty conservative in terms of recommending systemic treatment of, of anything. Um, and so I've researched this really extensively. And, and I think one question that, that a lot of people have is, yes, propranolol is an old medication. It's been around a long time. Babies with congenital heart defects have been on this for decades. Um, but when you're talking about an otherwise healthy infant with a hemangioma, you know, are there any long-term neurodevelopmental effects that we should be aware of? And I think... Um, for the most part, the studies that we have, you know, we have now about six years of data looking at develop neurodevelopmental outcomes in babies on propranolol for hemangiomas that show no effect at all. But we do have studies um, from, from adults, from the adult world of medicine, showing that propranolol may impact short-term memory may impact sleep quality and sometimes may impact mood. So there may be a CNS, you know, it's possible that there is this CNS interaction. And as I mentioned, we know there are beta receptors um, in the pineal gland that might, when you block them, that might impact melatonin production. So 
Um, what's, what's exciting, I think, is that natalol is uh, another non-selective beta blocker um, that is now being studied, and it, is, it does not cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, it has a longer half-life, which is nice because you can dose it two times a day. Um, and pilot studies show that the efficacy is about the same as propranolol. Um, fewer reported sleep disturbances. In theory, any concern that we might have about CNS effects um, would be really a non-issue with natalol. So that's, that, I predict, is coming soon. So here's a summary of what we covered today. Um, they have really important points. So hemangiomas proliferate early. Um, five and a half to seven and a half weeks of age is the highest rate of proliferation. Over two-thirds leave behind untreated, uh, of, of untreated hemangiomas leave behind permanent skin changes. High-risk hemangiomas that should be considered for beta blocker therapy, um, please consider seeing those babies in your practices at four weeks of age and just doing a check-in. And then if there are concerns, think about referring to us on the earlier side. Of course, we're always happy to see, I'm always happy to see a baby with a hemangioma at any age, but this is just sort of in an ideal world. Um, Propranolol is safe and highly effective for high-risk proliferating hemangiomas may prevent the need for corrective surgery. Timolol is a good option for small, thin, superficial hemangiomas that are not functionally threatening. And natalol holds promise as an alternative with no potential CNS effects. There my two munchkins. <laughs> Thanks for having me here today. I'm happy to answer questions. Because you're on mic, Julianne, if you could repeat the question for those who are watching. Sure. Yeah. Do you ever combine the timolol and the propranolol? Do you get better effect with that, or is propranolol so much better, why bother? Yeah, so do I, the question is, do I ever combine propranolol and timolol? The answer is I do sometimes. Um, so uh, the most common reason why I do that is if there's an ulcerated hemangioma that's really slow, where the ulcer is slow to heal on propranolol, sometimes I'll have parents do the timolol at the same time. Um, I, I am a little cautious about doing that just because I think um, the potential for absorption of timolol through an ulcer with an impact on, you know, blood pressure or heart rate is a little bit higher, so I always counsel parents about that. Um, but, it, yes, it's published as being safe in most cases, and I do occasionally do it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, thank you, this is great. Um, speaking from the primary care perspective, um, you know, we see a ton of these like teeny tiny little, probably nothings, may grow, but probably nothings. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes the more we, we in the office perseverate over something, the more parents perseverate. And so, sort of, question about the balance of those two in a kid who has a, you know, sort of relatively small lesion. And then just the data question, and the overall, um, looking at the total number of um, hemangiomas of all types, including the teeny tiny ones, what percent end up getting treated with, you know, or Yeah, okay, so two, so two questions. One is, um, for babies with very small, teeny tiny hemangiomas, what's the balance between um, treating when maybe that's not necessarily or increasing parental anxiety, but at the same time identifying babies who really do need treatment. And then um, second question is um, what percentage of hemangiomas overall end up needing treatment? So first question, I think, um, you know, the, the little ditzel hemangiomas, particularly if they're not on the central face, I, I don't worry about them. But I would say if they're here, I think they're not one to necessarily brush off and that at least those babies, you should see them at four weeks of life. If they're not really doing much and the parents aren't particularly concerned and they're less than five millimeters, then 
you know, you're probably fine to just watch them. Um, but I think if they're not on the central face and they're teeny tiny, uh, you know, I, I don't worry about those. Um, I don't think we have a good answer to the question of what percentage overall of hemangiomas end up needing treatment because so many babies have those little bits of ones and they never present to a specialist. And a lot of the times, even if you do a chart review, they're not necessarily always noted. You know, it's just an incidental finding and you don't necessarily put that in your assessment and plan. So I don't think we have a good, we don't have a good number on that. Yeah. Dr. Levin, thank you for that nice presentation. Question, you may have covered this, but I, if you did, I missed it. What, is there any information about the effectiveness of the propanolol treatment for these internal lesions in face and pelvis? Uh, yeah, so question of about how, how effective is propranolol for babies who have face syndrome, pelvis syndrome, or visceral hemangiomas? Um, and the answer is that propranolol works for hemangiomas anywhere, including visceral. So hepatic hemangiomas, the number one treatment is propranolol, laryngeal, propranolol, anywhere in the body. So the baby I showed you who had face syndrome, who I think I mentioned had a hemifacial palsy when she first came to see me, it was really remarkable. We admitted her. She went from having this very, you know, um, striking cry where only one side of her face was was crying, um, and then within 24 hours of propanolol, she was crying symmetrically, and so it had clearly was shrinking the intracranial hemangioma as well. So, yeah. Yeah. For those babies who you're concerned about one of these syndromes, so particularly face, are there guidelines about the timing of those further imaging studies? I imagine like a liver ultrasound is most effective once it's proliferated, but you don't want to do it too late. So, Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So the timing of, of imaging studies for babies that um, you worry about an associated syndrome or, or visceral hemangiomas. So I think um, the question of of imaging for face babies is one that comes up a lot. And I think you're obligated to image their vessels before you start propranolol. Most babies who have a large segmental facial hemangioma, you end up, you want to do propranolol. So you have to image their vessels before you do that. So most of those babies get imaged very early on. For a child with, say, seven hemangiomas who's otherwise healthy and you're um, trying to figure out when to image their liver, I think um, as long as they're two weeks old or, or, or older, I think you're fine to ultrasound because by that point, there'll be enough proliferation that you'll, you'll be able to see it. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, um, as going along with what Kimmy says, we see a lot in primary care that is like, I can't tell what that is. And as you said, it can be so subtle in those first couple of weeks of life. I wonder, um, especially based on one of the studies that you presented, how much you've used the power of technology. I mean, every one of us is like surgically attached to our phones. Yeah. Have you used it so that parents take a picture of the spot every week, upload it to MyDH to say, whoops, sorry, uh, to say, how, how, is it really proliferating? Is this really something that I need to worry about? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, I would love, I mean, I hope I get to this point. I would love to have even, I think I could probably fill a half day a week of just virtual consults. Um, and I think when we get to a point where we can all get compensated and reimbursed and have protected time for that, I think that will be a huge victory. Um, so I think the answer is yes, but practically speaking, 
I see most of those patients back just because otherwise I would be so flooded with my DH messages and I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be able to keep up. Um, so I have parents take photos, but then I say, okay, take photographs over the next three weeks and then I'll see you in three weeks and we'll reevaluate. Um, so that's how I usually do it. Yeah. Oh, good.